It is wonderful to be with you today. I love you. I miss you when I'm gone. It is awesome to be back in a great, great church. If this is your first time, we really are uh, glad that you're here. And we do want to honor you and welcome you uh, here today. Um, Friends. God is so good, and it is so uh, fun to be with you and to open his word and to see what it is that he has for our lives today. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to open them to Titus. We're going to be going through the book of Titus next couple of weeks, a series called Pagan Love. Fortunately, God loves pagans like us, and uh, that's what we see as we open this book called Titus. If you don't have your Bibles, there should be one in the seat back in front of you. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, we just want you to know know that you can take that. Uh, we, uh, there should be a teal covered Bible in front of you in the seat back there. And, and honestly, that teal, that, that wasn't a theft prevention device, right? We want you to take, if you don't have a Bible, you steal the teal today. That's our gift to you. All right. So Titus, uh, and we want to go, what is, what does pagan love look like? How does God love pagans? Does God really love everybody? Here's a question to start us off. Raise your hand if you have ever felt like a complete outsider. Raise your hand if, if somebody made you feel like, like they didn't want you to belong. Or Yeah, that's so many of us have had that experience. Uh, I will never forget when I was in ninth grade. Started a new school. My dad moved us across country. Started a new school. First day of school, I go into the cafeteria for lunch. And I get my tray of food and I look around for some safe harbor to eat my luncheon. I saw, uh, I saw that there was an open table. So I sat down by myself at an empty table thinking, well, this will be safe. Four upperclassmen come. They sit at the table. They say, hey, kid, this is our table. Get out. So in front of a crowded cafeteria, I, I got up with my stuff. I walked through the cafeteria, hoping, praying that there would be someone with kind eyes that would offer me safe quarter. There was none. So I stood up, I ate my lunch standing, and I left the cafeteria as soon as possible, waiting for the world's longest lunch period to end. Can we just do a collective awe? I know, right? Whiner. Okay. (laughs) I'm over. Therapy has helped me. Uh, I, I want you to just feel sort of the weight of what that experience of being pushed outside feels like, of wanting to belong, but just feeling like you weren't wanted. Now, I also want you to think about the opposite of that. Think about how good it feels when you might have been on the outside, but somebody put their arm around you and welcomed you in. Somebody on the inside said, come on in, we want you here. Uh, An example of this from the music industry. Uh, This last week, a guy named Glenn Hansard, uh, he's a musician, and you might not have heard of him. He plays with a band called The Frames. He's actually uh, very, very successful. He acted and wrote in a movie that won an Academy Award called Once. And, And this is a guy, just incredible talent, and he's on the inside. So he's playing in Seattle, a sold-out show at the, sol- at the show box. He gets up, 
he performs, the crowd loves him, he goes off, they cheer him out, he comes back for his encore. And when he comes back out in front of this sold-out crowd, he um, says, you know, we got to Seattle a day early. And so last night we went out and we were just looking for something to do. We saw a place with some live music. So we went in and honestly, we weren't expecting much that we were figuring the talent would be thin. And this young kid gets up on stage and he looks terrified. And the rest of the people in, in this, uh, you know, this tiny little establishment, they were completely indifferent to this musician's presence there. But he begins to play and he poured his heart and his soul into it. And, and he's telling this in front of his, you know, his own sold out show. And then he says, so we thought it would be fun to bring him here tonight to play for you. Would you please welcome this guy? And he welcomes him in a, a young kid named Dylan, um, Dylan Warnick. And he, come on in, Dylan. And so they brought this young guy in front of this sold out crowd. And, and the crowd was going nuts. They welcomed him. They were so excited. And then all he can think to say is this is a dream come true for me. And then he began to play. And of course, the crowd went nuts. The roof blew off the showbox. You probably read about it. Uh, here's what I want you to see is that this is a picture of somebody who was on the inside, who reached out to somebody on the outside and said, come on in. I see you. I recognize you. I want you to be affirmed and encouraged. And friends, I want to tell you, that's what Jesus is all about. That's what the gospel is all about. That's what the good news of God's love for us is all about. And so we've called this series the, uh, the you know, it's the Titus gospel, pagan love. And honestly, I recognize by choosing the word pagan love, some of you were like super, oh, whoa, what's he going to be talking about? Is this a, a series on sex? Is this going to be interesting sex series? Like, I, I, how does this work? I don't, here's the deal, pagan simply means, if you go back through the history, pagan simply means, um, it means rustic. It means country bumpkin, right? It means, uh, uh, most commonly, it's referred to as outsider. That was the original use of the word outsider. Now, some of us in today's world, we've expanded the definition, obviously, and we refer to uh, pagan as somebody who's read the entire Twilight Saga, somebody who hails from Duval, Right? Uh, somebody who claims not to have Bieber fever. Right? Uh, I mean, how could you not have Bieber fever? Hey, the guy's I, crazy. So here's the deal. Uh, you go back through, you know, the history of the word. Unless you are a person who is an Orthodox Jew with impeccable lineage, then you're a Gentile. The world in the, in the first century and previous was split literally into two people. You were either a Jew or you were a Gentile. Most of us are unfamiliar with that word, Gentile. So we chose the Greek version of that word, which is pagan. And originally in the first century, you were either a Jew, an Orthodox Jew, or you were a pagan in that Greco-Roman world. Well, by the fifth century uh, AD, right, five centuries after Jesus came, uh, it had sort of morphed a little bit, and then you were either a Christian or you were a pagan. And what that means is that today you're here, and if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, it means that you were once a pagan and now you're not, because now you're following Jesus. 
But it is so important for us to remember that whether you are a follower of Jesus right now or maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus, that God loves pagans. And if you're following Jesus right now, it's because God loved you when you were a pagan. And he sought after you and he called your name and he reached out for you because God loves pagans. God loves everybody. Now, I'm setting this series up intentionally this way because so often in today's world, especially in church world, we've got this preconceived idea of who God loves and who God doesn't love, right? We've got this idea of exactly what God is like. We've nailed them down and we know what God looks like. We know how God spends his money. We know how God votes because he does these things exactly like we do, right? And the reason why people in the church world have done all this is because they weren't content to be made in God's image. They decided to return the favor. And we have remade God in our image. And we have said that he is just like us. And so anytime we're marching into an argument, marching into a debate, marching into a war, we're confident that God is on our side because we've made him us. So I want to begin this whole series talking about the reality that God is bigger, that God is more wonderful, that God loves everyone. Before we ever loved God, God loved us. So we're going to show you a video, and it simply communicates this idea, that God loves everybody. I hope you enjoy this. All right. Catchy tune. You'll be humming it later. You're welcome. You know, it's true. It's true. Everything except for the vegetables turning into dancing candy part. Uh, Everything else is true, that God is love, that God loves everybody. That's the message uh, that again and again we see in this short little book called Titus. And I want to unpack it just a little bit because Titus is a person that Paul is writing a letter to. And he's writing a letter to this guy, Titus. Titus was a pagan. And Paul shared the love of God with Titus. And so Titus, this pagan who didn't know God and didn't know Jesus, gave his life to Jesus and then became um, transformed. And Paul mentored him and, and he grew him in the faith. And then Titus then became this young leader in the first century church. So that um, when Paul was dealing with the mess in Corinth and the church there, he sent Titus along. And if you know, if you've ever read through the book of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, you know there was a mess in the church in Corinth, right? I'm not just talking about a plate of spilled baklava, right? There was like, it was messy. And Titus was sent for a reason because he had this winsome, gracious, and mature demeanor about him. He was able to bring order, peace, unity, and honorable living to the church there. So Paul Wanting to showcase this young leader, uh, he also uh, sent him to the island nation of Crete. Now, uh, Crete is, uh, it was a beautiful um, sort of vacation destination type of a place, lovely, but it was also a total mess. The church there was 
a mess. And um, there was this civilization that had grown up, the Minoan civilization, but it was sort of destroyed when the Romans took over. Uh, and and uh, the island had sunk into kind of a dark ages there. The people in that culture, under that Roman oppression, they did not flourish, and they were... They'd gained a reputation for being lazy, for being uh, cheat, uh, cheats and liars. In fact, there was a saying in the first century to speak like a Cretan, which meant that uh, they would not tell the truth. Even if you tried to pin them down, you got them face to face, they would look in your eye and they would speak falsehoods to you. In our world today, we have a saying, it's to speak like you live in Renton. Which, I don't really know what that means. Uh, No, just kidding. I love Renton. I really do. Renton, if you have ever been on their website for the city, they're ahead of the curve. And I assume that means as you're going south on the 405, it's just before the curve, uh, they're located there. So what Paul does is he writes a letter to Titus and he's encouraging him and instructing him in his leadership of the churches that are there. So he offers, if you're filling in the blanks, greetings and grace at the beginning of this letter. He begins, Titus 1.1, he says, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen And to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Okay, the first uh, line to underline is, Paul is sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen. Now, elsewhere, Paul states his mission statement very clearly. That Paul is sent by God to proclaim faith to the Gentiles, to the pagans in his world. And so what Paul is saying here is that God loves pagans and God has chosen pagans to receive his message. And that's where I'm going because God loves pagans. Okay. So he is sent by God to proclaim faith to those God has chosen in this world. And then he says he has uh, chosen uh, them and he wants to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Second thing I want you to see is that when we accept the truth of God's grace in our life, it will lead us to live a life that reflects his truth. And when we say yes to God's grace, then God's love comes in, transforms us, and then the life that we live, the character that we exude, it will point others to God's goodness and God's grace. And that's what Paul says here in verse 1. Verse 2 says, this truth gives them confidence that they will have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. So this is the truth, right? God has communicated his love. He's communicated this from the, you know, the depths of time past. God's love for them has been a reality. But then Paul says this interesting phrase, God does not lie. God does not lie. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, God does not lie. Did you ever think that there were some things God cannot do? He cannot lie. He cannot do anything that would contradict his character. God can't sin. Sin and God cannot coexist because God is holy. God is righteous. So sin cannot come into his presence. God can't sin. It's not attractive to him, but he just can't. It's against his nature. So God cannot lie. And what that means, the practical implication for your life, is that means you can depend on him. You can trust what he says. 
You, you can have faith in God because God doesn't change. He's not going to change his opinion. He's not going to move around. He's not a moving target. He is love, and he will tell you the truth. And so you can trust him. Now, God doesn't lie, but his enemy does, right? Satan, the enemy of God, your enemy as well. Satan is known as the father of lies. You know how I know? Because he says that he hates Justin Bieber. And honestly, how could you hate Justin Bieber, right? I mean, it's a total liar. No, I'm just kidding. That was a joke, and you didn't laugh. Uh, So I'm praying that the 6 p.m. service finds it funny, uh, or else I'll go 0 for 3 on that one. No, Satan is a liar. God tells the truth. The next verse uh, is this. It says, and now, at just the right time... He has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I have been entrusted with this work for him. Uh, The phrase I'd love to focus on is that first one, just the right time. God has revealed this message of Jesus Christ. You know, Gary last week talked about time. Talked about how there's chronos time, chronology, it's the TikTok time. But he also talked about kairos time which means in the fullness of time, in due time. It's almost like there, there are times when there's an anointing on a moment, an anointing on a season. And what Paul's saying here is at just the right time, in God's infinite wisdom, this was the time to reveal Jesus Christ and to begin to proclaim the words of his arrival into this earth, his salvation, which is for all people. And then it says, which we announce to everyone, which we announce. If you go into the meaning of that word, it, it means proclaim. Uh, it also, you could literally describe it, transliterate it as it means to trumpet. We trumpet this message to everyone. Now, rhetorical question. What message are you trumpeting with your life? When people look at your life, what is it they they see you proclaiming? What are you announcing with your arrival into your workplace or in your classroom? What are you announcing in your household or in your neighborhood? What what is it that your life trumpets? Paul says, we trumpet, we announce this message to everyone. Okay, verse 4. I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Titus is his true son in the faith. In other words, Paul was able to introduce Jesus to Titus. Paul was able then to mentor him and, and grow him up in the faith. And then he says it's because of Jesus Christ that grace and peace come into our lives. Right? And so we see this in Titus's life, grace and peace through Jesus. Now, Paul will instruct Titus to organize these churches in the island of Greece. And you're going to notice as Paul instructs Titus, he says, let's not go after rules. Let's not just focus on behavior, but let's go after character. Because we recognize that character is at the heart of all things and our conduct is simply a revelation of our character. So what you'll notice in this short book is that Paul does not identify one system that everybody's got to follow when it comes to living in a church context because he knows that any system is going to fail unless there are godly men and women that are leading, right? 
any system will fail unless there's that sense of godliness and righteousness, unless the grace of Jesus Christ has truly transformed our hearts. So that's what he's going to go after. So again, if you're filling in the blanks, the first thing Paul offers is greetings and grace. The second thing he offers is a challenge into leadership, a challenge into leadership. And Paul's going to talk with Titus about what does it look like to establish good leaders in all these churches in Crete. He begins in verse 5, says, I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. There were, uh, there were churches in every city-state on the island of Crete at this time. And scholars are a bit, uh, there's a little bit of discussion as to how these churches got there. Maybe Paul had a, a trip, a mission trip there previously. We don't have any record of that. Uh, maybe other disciples had visited the island of Crete. Some scholars think that even after the day of Pentecost, which happened at the very beginning of Acts, that there were some there from Crete who accepted Christ. They went back to Crete and started churches. We just don't know. All we know is that there are churches there and we see that Paul says, I left you on the island of Crete. That sounds like a banishment. It's not. It was, it was a lovely place. Uh, he has a purpose there. It's to bring this uh, a gravitas of leadership to these different churches. What is interesting, and you and I, this makes sense to us when we sort of get our minds around it. There was a great deal of mythology in Crete. And this, it makes sense to us when you think about what you know of Greek mythology. But Crete, it, it was, the, the, the mythology is that it was ruled by a guy named King Minos, M-I-N-O-S. And he was the guy who housed the Minotaur in a labyrinth. And the civilization that had grown up at Crete was called the Minoan civilization after King Minos. So it's not surprising that mythology was prevalent in this culture. And that they really did believe in a pantheon of capricious gods that, you know, would do all kinds of crazy things to humans and, and all this stuff. And it's in that context that people had come to Jesus Christ. They'd begun to assemble in churches, but there was no, there, leadership was lacking. And so, uh, Paul wants Titus to establish elders. What I want to do is I want to talk to the men and the women in the room. So I don't just, I want to talk to guys. I want to talk to both men and women and I want to expand it so that I, I don't just want this passage to refer to elders. I want it to refer to all Christ followers who are ready and they're willing to take a step forward into leadership. However, God's calling you. That's what I want. Now, if you're here and you're just checking this whole God thing out and you're asking questions, it's a great place to be because you get a front row seat as to how those who have been impacted by the grace of Jesus Christ are to live, how their character is to reveal itself in this world. Okay, so Paul continues. Uh, he says in Titus 1, 6, an elder must live a blameless life. A leader must live a blameless life. And, and a lot of you are going, well, that puts me right out. Uh, Mike, I was with you, you know, right up until the first requirement, and uh, then I realized uh, it's not for me anymore. Here's what I want you to understand. The idea of blameless life, let's just unpack it for a moment. This does not mean you've got to be perfect. You're not perfect, and I'm not perfect. There's no elder that's perfect. There's no leader that's perfect. This is not about a theology of perfection. But what it does require is a humility to recognize that when you make a mistake, you own up to it. 
and you confess it and you repent and you make it right. You keep short accounts with your friends, short accounts with your business partners, short accounts with your spouse and short accounts with Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's the kind of reality when blameless, I I want you to take it. It doesn't mean perfect. It simply means humble and authentic that we walk with Jesus in a transparent fashion. Now, the next thing he says is he must be faithful to his wife and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. Okay, we'll unpack that a bit. Faithful to one wife. Again, remember, this is first century Greece. So in this context, were there people who had more than one wife? In other words, was polygamy still practiced? It was. Next question. Were there people who had one wife but additional girlfriends on the side? Yes, that still happens today, by the way. All right. Were there people who had a wife at home but had homosexual relationships in the community? Yes. There were, in fact, if you've ever studied Socrates, Plato, you understand this was a prevalent part of this first century uh, Greco-Roman culture. Were there still people who followed pagan temple worship practices and visited the prostitutes in the temples? Yes, there were. Now, are there all sorts of sexual expressions happening today in our culture 2,000 years later? Yes, there are. Right. What Paul is saying is that because God loves pagans, because pagans are watching your lives as you follow Jesus Christ, it's important for you to reveal by your life that you believe God's way is the best way. That you trust God enough to believe that he knows what's best for our sexuality, what's best for our sexual expression, what's best for marriage, what's best is monogamy, it's faithfulness, it's walking in service to one another for a lifetime. And by your life, you reveal whether or not you trust God in this issue. And so he says, this is why this faithfulness is important. You know, it's interesting, uh, some religions teach that if you die a martyr, you go to your own personal heaven with 70 virgins as wives. I was talking to a pastor friend of mine about this fact, and he told me, you know what, that doesn't sound like heaven, he said. I've got one wife, and she has more gauges, knobs, and dials than I know what to deal with. He says, 70 sounds like hell. My son Caleb heard me talking about that and he said, Dad, why would somebody want to go to heaven with Virginians? I don't. (laughs) Just kidding. (laughs) Friends, God calls us to something different. He calls us to a higher standard. And again, it's because God does know what's best for us. He loves us. What he wants us to do is experience the fullness of life. The the most free and vibrant and abundant life there is. And so he gives us the truth. He doesn't lie. And as we follow him, as we walk with him, he knows that others in the community are going to be watching our lives. They're going to be seeing how we live. And again, so this is all goes back to the grace of Jesus Christ. Paul's uh, focusing on our conduct, but only as it reveals our character. Next thing the verse says is, he says uh, the, the children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. So a leader's kids are an indication of what's happening in the home. And are the kids rebellious? Are they wild? The literal word is the word riotous. Are they riotous? Uh, and I just want you to know as a leader, I've got three kids. 
They're all in elementary school. They're doing pretty good. They follow Jesus Christ, although they do get riotous, especially after some Coca-Cola. All right? That's the truth. Now, um, what, what does this mean? Why is Paul interested in our kids? Here's why. Because oftentimes the litmus test of a person's faith is what's happening in their home behind the closed doors. And so those who know you best, if, if those who know you best uh, say, no, he's the real deal, she's the real deal, that holds water, right? And, and so what Paul's saying is, is there, is there thoughtful discipline in the home? Is, is God's truth being consistently lived out? Is, is God's grace being offered? And so, yes, there is uh, discipline, but not with too heavy of a hand. Right? And, and is there consistency in the home as, as life and, and faith is navigated there? And so that's what he's looking for. And, and again, it's, it's that litmus test. What's happening in, behind the closed doors is that, uh, you, you know, is consistent with what's happening in the community. I was struck with this reality when I came to a memorial service for Pastor Wendell Smith. And many of you knew Wendell. He was a pastor of City Church, founding pastor of the church just across the way. And, and he passed away recently. Overlake was honored to host his memorial service right here in this room. And um, I, I had had two interactions with him. Is that, that's all. Not a ton of time had I spent with Wendell. But in those interactions, he was gracious. He was kind. He communicated a fatherly wisdom to me and a genuine concern for my heart. And after those interactions, I remember thinking, wow, Wendell must be a great pastor because he was a great pastor to me. But then when I was here at the memorial service, I was struck by the fact that his wife, Ginny, shared. She spoke on stage and, and communicated her love for Jesus and her love for Wendell. And, and she had served in a pastoral role at City Church for years and years with Wendell. And then his daughter got up, and she was a worship pastor at a church down in Vegas. And she shared about her love of Christ and her honor of her dad. And, and then Wendell's son-in-law got up, and he was a pastor as well, and he was sharing uh, about Wendell's faith. And, and, and then his son, Wendell's son, Judah, got up, and he's now the lead pastor of City Church. And, and he began to share about his dad and the authenticity of his faith. And, and then it just struck me, you know what? I, I was wrong. Wendell's not a great pastor. Wendell's a great Christian. That behind closed doors, Wendell loved Jesus Christ. That he was gracious and warm and winsome in his most private moments, giving glory and honor to God. And that was so attractive and so warm and so inviting that those who knew Wendell most decided to follow their dad into ministry and to serve him publicly with the rest of their lives. I mean, that is a picture of success. That's my picture. That's what I want. I pray for my kids that they would follow me into faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So recognize that's what Paul's going after in this, uh, in, in this passage. You know, that you and I would be humble enough to say, kids, you know what? Dad's not perfect. And, and dad makes mistakes sometimes, but daddy loves Jesus and he loves you. And when I do make a mistake, when I do stumble, I pick myself up and I confess that and I repent and I try to make things right. Usually by raising your allowance. No, I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. 
Now, I do want to give a caveat because I know there are many who love Jesus and they authentically follow after Jesus and they love their families. And for whatever reason, as they raise their kiddos, they watch their children walk away from the Lord or make poor decisions. It happens. It happens, and we recognize the very best parents and the most loving uh, followers of Jesus Christ, uh, oftentimes we see our kids make poor decisions. And uh, I just want you to know that this is that part of the reality where every one of us walks our own road. And we, we, all, um, you know, we all have to give an account of our lives to Jesus. But if you're a parent in that context, I do have four quick encouragements for you. The first encouragement is that you would pray for your kids and that you would never give up on them. Pray for them, never give up. And again, because God loves pagans, God loves your kids, God will never give up on your kids, you don't ever give up on them. Second encouragement that I would say to you is you need to own what you need to own. So if there are things in your life, uh, if there are times when you've been harsh or times when you've been inconsistent in your faith, whatever that might look like, that you identify that. And if you need to ask for forgiveness of your kids, go ahead and ask for forgiveness. But, but you own what you need to own. You don't own it all, but you just recognize what you need to own. Third thing that I would encourage you to do is I would encourage you to continue to walk humbly with God. So often when people who are near to us, when, when close friends or family members stray from God, suddenly the enemy uses that and we become then tempted to stray as well. So I would encourage you simply walk humbly with God. You continue your personal journey with Jesus. And the last thing I want you to do is trust Proverbs, which tells us that as we raise children in the way that, that they should go, even if they make a detour, when they're old, they will come back to the truth that they know. It says in Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he will not depart from it. So hold on to this truth and pray it over your kiddos. If you find yourself in that context. The next thing that Paul talks about is in verse 7. He says, For an elder must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent or dishonest with money. And so Paul's talking about this character that reveals itself in all sorts of behaviors. And what he says off the bat is that humility is the prized character. That we would be humble followers of Jesus, not boasting, not bragging, not showing off. And if you do find yourself there, which, you know, from time to time that happens, we realize it. And then we say, you know what? I'm sorry. I, I, I don't know what I was doing in that conversation. I, you know, for whatever reason, I found myself showing off. I'm so sorry. Uh, that's not who I want to be. Please forgive me. And I promise you, if you walk that road... People will not remember your showing off. They will remember your humility. Okay. So we, we're not to go after that arrogance. Uh, the next thing he says is not to be quick-tempered. Are you quick to temper, quick to anger, quick to judge? Right? Do people walk on eggshells around you? Or are you gracious? Is your uh, first response love or is it freak out? Right? Because if it is, uh, just as Ice Cube says, you better check yourself before you wreck yourself, okay? You know, don't be violent, Paul says, right? And, and you, you know, you don't want this said about you. Oh, oh, yeah, that guy? You know, I've heard he loves Jesus. Yeah, he's a real nice guy, a, a real teddy bear. But if you ever make him mad, he goes MMA on you, 
right? You don't want that to be said about you. It's not violent, not raging. However, friends, can I tell you that this doesn't mean you can't be strong in your convictions. It doesn't mean that you can't be confident in who you are in Christ or courageous in the way in which you conduct business or you approach your life because you know Jesus, because you're walking with Jesus. You can be steadfast. You don't have to be wishy-washy. Right? You, there can be a strength about your character. But violence, Paul says, violence so often causes us to win that battle, that argument, that debate. We might win the battle, but Paul says you'll lose the war. And he would rather have you live this kind of strong, gentle, steadfast life. Don't be violent. And especially violence against women, against children, against those who are the weakest members of our global society. We need to stand up for them. And we need to protect them and care for them and serve them. By the way, gentlemen, we have a guys night out this Friday. And I just want to say I cannot wait to hang with you. Uh, It's going to be very fun. We'll talk just a little bit more about this concept on Friday. The next part of the verse, Paul says he must not be a heavy drinker. And uh, it's so important to note, you know, he doesn't say he must be a never drinker, right? He doesn't say that. The Bible nowhere uh, preaches prohibition, but it consistently prohibits drunkenness. And I know just because this is a fallen world, we recognize where we live. If, if you're the kind of person who can't tell the difference, uh, then we want to encourage you as a church. And we want to walk with you towards wholeness and towards sober living. We've got all kinds of counseling available. We've got support groups available and Celebrate Recovery uh, is available as well. So we'd love to have you join us in that. And again, the question is, why is Paul saying, don't be a heavy drinker? It's because God loves pagans and pagans are watching our lives. And these churches were on the island of Crete and they were made up of pagans who had said yes to Jesus. But just a, a while before, there were pagans who lived in the community. And, and so they're wondering, what is this whole Christianity thing all about? Paul says they're going to watch your life. And if you're a leader who's out there and you're slurring your words by 2 p.m. in the afternoon, uh, which is redundant. I said that redundantly. 2 p.m. is always in the afternoon. And uh, and I have not been drinking today. I just want you to know. Uh, Paul says if if that's you, you're getting kicked out of the taverns. Right? If, if, if people see you chatting up the Ionian columns because you got beer goggles on, you don't know what you're doing. You're not communicating the grace of Jesus Christ that has transformed your life. And all you're communicating is that the grace of Jesus Christ doesn't mean anything. Because everybody else in Crete's living that same kind of life, and they are heavy drinkers, and that is a part of the culture. And, and, and grace, it, it does something to our character. It transforms us. As he saves us, God shows us how to celebrate without drunkenness, right? He gives us joy that's not dependent on substance. He provides us peace and clarity. And he shows us how to praise him, not only for his love of us, but for his love of all those around us. And the next part of the verse says, uh, is not dishonest with money. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yeah, that's never going to be a good thing in God's kingdom. Right? Um, you know, I, I don't know that I've ever really watched a, a, a TV preacher. I don't, I don't know that I've ever tuned in and watched like a, 
you know, a church service on television. Mostly because in the 1980s, I remember a series of scandals that happened with televangelists. And I don't know if I could tell you specifics or names. All I know is that that was such a mark. That was such a strike against what really is authentic and true about Christianity. Because an entire culture now could just dismiss, right? An entire culture could just say, oh, see, it's just fake. It's just a show. It's just a business. It's just for money, right? And the embezzling that was going on and the stealing and the misappropriation, all that stuff. Because the entire culture is saying, hey, is Jesus in here? Is Jesus real in here? And how they're deciding that is they're looking at your life and saying, is Jesus in there? Is Jesus really there? And right now, we're all feeling super self-righteous because probably very few embezzlers in the room, right? Like none of us have stolen from our business or whatever. But I want to go back to a couple weeks ago when Pastor Jake was here and say, look, if you're not tithing, right? If If you're not being generous with your money to God, then your life and the way you treat money, it's still a witness. And if you're not giving God anything, it's being a poor witness. And so you let the way that you treat money, you let the way that you are generous with your, with your finances, you let your faithfulness in that regard be a witness for the fact that Christ is real. And you do trust him. And you don't just trust him in your bedroom. You trust him in your finances as well. Okay. So Paul goes on. Titus 1.8, he says, Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. Again, this is uh, men and women and leaders, uh, all Christ followers. The challenge is we must enjoy having guests in our home. This is the way that we open the door of hospitality in our communities, in our neighborhoods, right? God has placed us in our world for a reason so that we would develop those friendships that our friends would see our character and they would find it attractive. They would find the grace of Jesus attractive and, and maybe begin to ask questions. Hey, why do you have such hope? Why do you have such joy, etc.? And so this year at Overlake, we're challenging folks to be a part of what we're calling the Supper Club. And I know hundreds of you are already a part of the Supper Club. Supper Club very simply means that uh, once a month uh, over the next, uh, I think, nine months now and the rest of this year, we're going to invite somebody, you know, friend, a neighbor, a uh, person we're coaching the soccer team with, a coworker. We're going to invite them into our house. And we're going to have a meal with them. And this is completely informal, right? I don't want any of you to, you know, buy steaks, grill them up, and then submit your receipt to the church, right, for reimbursement. That's not going to happen. No, this is on your own. This is on my own. We're going to live this life of enjoying having guests in our home because we want to, we've been impacted by the love of Jesus and we want to share that grace with others. So we'll just do that by developing friendships. Um, I would tell you that I had a follow-up with a guy this last week who has done just that. He's opened his home. He's a part of the supper club. He's invited uh, neighbors into the home. He said, what was so interesting, Mike, is they are, um, they would identify themselves as pagans. They, they would identify themselves as not interested in religion, you know, far from God, whatever. And he said, they came into our home and they were afraid because they thought for sure we were going to offer them, you know, the meal and then serve them dessert and then preach at them. And he said, instead, what we just did is had a, a blast together. And we, did, we shattered all sorts of stereotypes as we enjoyed the evening together. He said, I don't know if they're going to come to church or not. But the point is, they have a different view of Jesus because they spent the evening in our home. 
So that's, that's the challenge there. That's what we're going after, Supper Club. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. But the next aspect of this, the practical way this happens, is that we, this is our home. This, this church building, this is our home where we come, we meet the Lord in his house, and we feel comfortable here. This is our home. And every single week, we are challenged to enjoy having guests in our home. Because God brings guests into our home every single week. And so every single service on Sunday, we have an opportunity. It's just 30 seconds where we say, hey, turn, find somebody you don't know, get their name, etc. And some of you are introverts, and I know you, right? And, and you think that 30 seconds is the longest hour and a half of my life. Yeah, clap. That's right. That's the only thing. I got to get to clap, right? It's like, ah, it's so hard. I don't like to do that. Here's, here's the deal. That 30 seconds might be the most important 30 seconds of the morning. Because the most important person that has come into this place is a total guest. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus, who feels very uncomfortable, maybe feels very far from God, is wondering if, if there is grace, if, if there is kindness here. And so in that 30 seconds, you have an opportunity to shatter a stereotype and to welcome a guest into this house. Now, I, I want to encourage you because I know that there are some of you that are introverts. And so I want to do just a little bit of training. Okay? Everybody can do this 30 seconds, even those who are petrified of people. All right? Here's how you do it. The first step is I want you right now, I want you to smile and show me some teeth. Can you do that? Let's just see. Now, sir, I, I see you back there. You're not smiling. Let's go. Uh, did you notice how much brighter it got in here? Right? Just, it, just the mood got a little bit brighter. It was lighter in here. Now, everybody can smile. Everybody can shake a hand and say, hi, my name is, right? Everybody can ask, and what's your name? That's a good follow-up because you want to be interested in the other person as well. Okay, everybody can say, oh, you know what? I, I haven't met you before. You know, are you, how long have you been coming to Overlake? Right? Or, or, you know, you can just ask a follow-up question. Hey, do you normally come to this service or anything like that? And then everyone can say, look, I, I know this might sound weird, but after the service, can I buy you an Audi? Right? I, I mean, just kidding. You don't have to do that. But what I want you to do is I want you to understand that that 30 seconds, it is not because we need to program an extra 30 seconds on a Sunday morning service. It is because the most important person coming into this house is the person who's farthest from God. And we want to make sure that that person, whoever they may be, we're not going to put a sticker on their head or something, right? Hey, I'm far from, I'm, I haven't been to church in 20 years. Point me out, you know? Like, that's not it at all. We want, we want to just communicate the reality. We were far from God. And Jesus poured out his love on us. And if we can take 30 seconds to communicate that love to someone we don't know, we want to use that time for that. Now, the last coaching I want to give you on this is, listen, I know you know people in the room, right? That 30 seconds is not for you to catch up on how things are going in each other's lives. Right? The time for that later, you can go to lunch later, whatever. The 30 seconds is for you to meet someone that you do not know. All right, so here's the deal. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. Stand up right now. Find somebody you do not know. Go through these steps. Let's see the smile. Let's go for it. Oh my goodness, this is beautiful. This is so beautiful. The 30 seconds are over and most of you are still talking. Oh my goodness. Overlake, I love you. You're overachievers. 
My buddy Dean just said, hey, Mike, can you keep it down? I'm in the middle of a conversation here. Now, listen, uh, it's so beautiful to see. I want to encourage you to make friendship a habit, that you would make hospitality a habit, that you would recognize every single time that we come into this house, we have an opportunity to extend that love, that warmth to one another. So let's, let's go ahead and do that. Uh, I, I want to jump to the end of this. The scripture says in Romans 3.20, For no one can ever be made right by, with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. Now when you take a look at that verse, what it communicates very, very clearly is this. That we don't do all of this good stuff in order to earn God's love. You have to get that. That we don't, we don't do these good behaviors, that we don't focus on this like moral code in order to get God to love us. The truth is that we have been loved radically by God. That God's grace has been poured out lavishly on our lives and we allow his grace to transform us so that we can in fact exude the character that he has created within us. That's what this whole thing is about. We were pagans far from God. We've received God's love. Now we want to show God's love to everyone. God loves everyone. We want to communicate that to everybody. No matter where they are, no matter who they are, no matter what they're up to. And I know I've harped on this a long time. And I know we've talked about this a lot. And, and so I, I just want to do a little, a little bit of a litmus test right now. I'm going to show you the picture of two people who have been in the news all week long. All right. Notice your first response. Yeah, let's go ahead with this. See, so when, you, when you look at this picture, is your first response condemnation? Is that your first? I'm talking about your first response. Is your first response, what a joke. Write them off. Is your, is your first response just simply horror, right? Qaddafi's doing horrific things. You just horror and you distance yourself immediately. Or is your first response the knowledge that you were far from God and he loved you anyway? And that God would use your life to impact others who are right now far from God. Right? I want to close with this verse. It's, it's Romans 3.22. It says, We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. This is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. After that last phrase, no matter who we are, write the words, because God loves pagans like me. No matter who we are. Everyone who believes in Jesus. Right? We want to take the person who is outside wrap our arms around them and welcome them on the inside. Okay, let's pray together. Jesus, we do thank you that you've loved us. We thank you that before we ever thought to call your name, you were calling ours. We thank you that before we ever decided to love you, that you were pouring your love out on us. We want to thank you that your love is unconditional, meaning that it is not conditioned upon our response to it. It's not conditioned upon our behavior, but rather you've settled the issue. The issue is you're going to pour your love out. And now, Lord, I ask that you would help us settle the issue, that not only will we receive your love, but we also commit to sharing it with others. 
Jesus, would you work, even in this room right now, if there are some here who have never said yes to your love, would you please uh, allow them to sense your, your graciousness, your goodness, your care for them. Would you allow them to embrace you today? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.